Welcome everybody to tonight's Scottsdale um, Facebook study. Today is Saturday the 7th of January and you're all very welcome to um, this study. My name is Audrey Ann and I am a recovered compulsive overeater from County Mead in Ireland and I'll be your host for today's study. The co-hosts are Maria F, Nancy J and Johan. If you have any questions during the meeting, please contact the host of the co-host private messaging in the chat function. Please note that the speaker, Harlan, will be recorded for the duration of the study. However, the question and answer session which follows will not be recorded. We will post the link to the previous recordings in the chat box. We ask if you could please make sure to keep your microphone on, on mute at all times. And if you are doing anything distracting, exercising or moving around or eating, we'd ask that if you could um, please turn off your camera. We will now open the meeting um, with the serenity prayer. God, grant me serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Thank you. And now I'll hand you over to Harlan. Thanks, Harlan. You need to unmute yourself, Harlan. About that. Okay, now I can start again. I really appreciate being here, you guys being here today, and I appreciate uh, all the service that you guys do to make this meeting possible. What a wonderful, wonderful group we have here. And uh, this morning, uh, we are going to just remind you for the last time that next weekend, <clears throat> instead of skipping the meeting, we're going to have two speakers. We have one in place and I need to get, I'll get another one before next week. We'll get somebody to fill in, but they're not gonna be doing big book like I am. They're just gonna tell their story and uh, we'll follow that up with questions and answers. We'll have two 30 minute speakers. And uh, so that'll be good. And next weekend is the, is the, uh, OA birthday, I couldn't even think. Next weekend is the OA birthday in Los Angeles, California. We would love to see as many people out there as we possibly can for information, registration, go to Los Angeles Overeaters Anonymous Intergroup, that's L-A-O-A-I-G, or Los Angeles Overeaters Anonymous Intergroup, and click on the link that says OA birthday, and you can register for your hotel. You can register for anything that you need in terms of uh, whatever on that website, on that, in that situation, you can register for the convention. And I hope to see as many of you out there as we can. That said, if you're going to be here, you're going to have two wonderful, wonderful speakers. And I couldn't be more excited about the speakers that you guys are going to have for next week. We have been talking, and when we get started, we're going to be on page 68. We reviewed our fears thoroughly. We're going to start at that point. We reviewed our fears thoroughly. Where does fear come from? I covered this in detail a couple of weeks ago. Fear comes from a threat or a perceived threat to one or more of my basic instincts of life. Their three basic instincts of life are the social instinct, the security instinct, and the sex instinct. If you would like a much more uh, detailed explanation of these instincts and how they how they affect us go to the recording that i made about two or three weeks ago and it's right there and if i do say so myself it is well done i think it is very very well done but fear comes from a perceived threat to these instincts or in other words i'm going to lose something that i have that i don't want to give up or I'm not going to get something in the future that I want. Resentment always looks backwards. Re means to do again. Sentment comes from an old word, sentiri, which means to do again. And fear always looks forward. F, fear, forward, re, reverse in the back. Fear is I won't get my way in the future. Resentment is I didn't get my way in the past. Simply boiled down, we have an idea that comes from ego 
that everyone that we know should stick to our script. Everybody that we know should love us and respect us enough that if we want to do something, we that's what we should do. Or if we don't want to do something, that's what we should not do. And that comes from our demonic, destructive ego. Or as my friend in Portland, Oregon says, my ego is not my amigo. My ego is not my friend. So my ego gets in the way in a lot of different ways. But what it does is it makes fear extremely, extremely prevalent in my life. And I can't live peacefully with that fear. And so food becomes the solution to the problem. Fear becomes the problem and food becomes the solution to the problem. And when I eat this extra food, it makes my fear go away. It just makes everything okay again. And food is not the problem. Once again, food is the solution to the problem. And fear blocks God out just as effectively as a resentment does. Okay, now that we've covered fear a little bit here, what we're going to do is we're going to simplify and we're going to make very plain the second of the three parts of the fourth step inventory. The second of the three parts in the four-step inventory is the fear section or the fear inventory. And remember that this is for fears that do not have a resentment attached to them, as the book is going to tell us. It is for fears that do not have a resentment attached to to them. So let's go to page 68. And if you remember, we use a four column inventory for resentments. The first column for resentments is who or what do you resent? The second column is for what did they do to you? Why do you resent them? 19 words or less, please. The third column is what basic instinct or instincts are affected by this resentment? And the fourth column in the resentment inventory is, what did I do, if anything, to bring this resentment about? And what character defects were brought to the surface? Once again, just to review, we used a four-column inventory for resentments. Now we're going to use a four-column inventory for our fears. We're not going to make it complicated. We're going to make it as absolutely simple as we possibly can. So we're going to simplify rather than complicate. Whenever you find yourself standing at the precipice of any OA activity that seems overly complicated to you, you're probably doing it wrong. I'm going to say that again, because for some people, that's not a very comfortable thought, because we are more comfortable. The more complex something is, we tend to get very comfortable in it because we get paralyzed and we don't have to do anything a lot of times. But the more complicated something is, the better the chance I'm doing it incorrectly. This is a very simple program. It is a very simple program for complicated people. Simple program, complicated people. We're going to simplify this fear inventory so that we can do it and not fear it. One of the fears people have very, very consistently is I fear my fourth step inventory. There's really nothing to fear. It's very, very simple. Stop trying to do it perfectly. And you'll find that when you stop trying to do it perfectly, that it comes along quite nicely, actually. Okay, page 68. We're on, we reviewed our fears thoroughly. Okay, let's take a look. We reviewed our fears thoroughly. We put them on paper, even though we had no resentment in connection with them. If there is a resentment in connection with your fear, where does it go? It goes in the resentment section of your inventory. So we reviewed our fears thoroughly. We put them on paper. Column one, who or what do you fear? Who or what do you fear? 
we asked ourselves why we had them. Column two, column two, why do you have this fear? What is, what is it that, you know, why do you have it? Wasn't it because self-reliance failed us? Self-reliance was good as far as it went, but it didn't go far enough. Column three, we're going to translate that into what basic instinct or instincts are affected by this fear. Column one, who or what do you fear? Column two, why do you have the fear? Column three, what basic instinct or instincts are affected by this fear? Some of us once had great self-confidence, but it didn't fully solve the fear problem or any other. When it made us cocky, it was worse. So we're just going to put in column four, what did you do, if anything, to bring the fear about and what character defects were brought to the surface? It's a very simple process. I'm going to review the four columns of the fear inventory so that we can move forward rather quickly. Column one. Who or what do you fear? Column two, why do you fear it? Column three, what basic instinct or instincts are affected by this fear? Column four, what did you do to bring the fear about, if anything, and what character defects were brought to the surface? Very, very simple. We can understand that. We don't need to use any downloads. We don't need to go buy any concordances. We don't have to go to the bookstore and buy anything. We can just use what's in the big book. If you want to buy those things, it's not wrong. It's not bad. I just don't see the reason for it. I really, truly do not. There are some good downloads out there. There are some not so great downloads out there. I don't use them. I don't know. So don't let's not waste time in the question and answer asking me about specific downloads because I don't use them. And to tell you the truth, I don't know. Let's continue on. We've got perhaps there is a better way. We think so. I'm on page 68. For we are now on a different basis, the basis of trusting and relying upon God. Instead of relying upon ourselves, we're going to rely upon God. And how are we going to rely upon God? By doing our four-step inventory, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth. And then we're going to get into step 10. And that's going to clear out these fears, these resentments, these these uh, emotions as we move forward in our program recovery. We trust infinite God rather than our finite selves. Now, there is probably not a time in my life where I haven't had some fear going on at some time. I was born a very scared kid. I didn't like to be away from my folks, even though they were crazy and all this other stuff. I felt very bad when I was away from them and I would often get upset. Uh, I feared the future. I feared the past. I have a lot of shame. I have a lot of guilt. I have a lot of remorse. I have a lot of emotions that build up inside me. And I don't want them to see the light of day when I'm in my disease. Now I'm fine with it. I'm, I'm okay with it. But at that time, when I was in my disease, I did not want my emotions to ever see the light of day. I figured if I could just keep everything to myself, then everything would be fantastic. And that's what I most wanted was just to keep everything to myself. Let's concentrate on you. Don't concentrate on me. And then that way I'll be better off. Well, the truth is there's a time to think about other people. And then there's a time to think about ourselves and do our inventories. Both have their place. Both are important and both need to be in place if I am going to recover. So it's very, very important for me to understand that I can't rely on myself. I have to rely upon God. Very important. We are in the world to play the role he assigns. You remember in different parts of the big book, it says he is the father. We are his children. He is the director. He is the principal. We are his agents. So we have many, many other areas of the big book where we are getting reminded 
that we are in the role to play the, we are here in the world to play the role that God assigns. You know, I want to be the first baseman for the Cubs or the quarterback for the Bears, or I want to be here, do this or do that. Well, I didn't pay the price. You know, I didn't go out and do the work to become those things. I didn't do the necessary footwork. And we have a friend, all of us have a friend in New Jersey, South Jersey, and she says, I'm very sorry you did not get the results from the work you did not do. Well, if I'm not going to do the work, I can't expect any type of results. Even when I do the work, a lot of times I get told, no, I get told, you know, something else by God. And God says, if you just rely on me, I've got something better for you. I've got something that'll be much more uh, in line with your needs and your wants and your desires. If you'll just let go of what you keep hanging on to, I will give you something better. It may be hell waiting. You know what they say, one door opens, another door, when one door closes, another door opens, but nobody said it was going to be painless waiting in the hallway. And a lot of times when I'm waiting in the hallway, there is a lot of pain. But if I give God a chance, give him some time, give him some of my energy, he will make everything okay. He will make everything palatable and then some, it'll be wonderful. Just to the extent that we do as we think he would have us and humbly rely upon him. Now, notice that him is capitalized and notice that he, he enables us to match calamity with serenity. I love that line. It's one of my favorite sentences in the big book, because in my life, my existence on earth was one large calamity, one large calamity. And when I can read the words that God will allow me to match calamity with serenity, oh my God, that to me is one of the greatest promises that anyone has ever come up with. It is just fantastic calamity with serenity. And I could do a whole workshop Friday night, Saturday, all day, Sunday morning, uh, just on that sentence alone, we could talk. I, there's enough there in that sentence for us to talk about for actually for several days, matching calamity with serenity. We never apologize to anyone for depending upon our creator. I am not going to apologize to anyone because I rely on God. Look, I've tried it my way. I like you. We are products of Western culture. Whether you're in Israel, whether you're in China, whether you're whatever you are, Europe, America, Central America, South America, we are all products of a culture that tell us you can do it. Now, we've talked about this before. You pull yourself up, young man, by the bootstraps. You pull yourself up, young man, and you discipline yourself. You know, if you only had discipline, if you only had character, if you loved your mother, you wouldn't eat that much. If you loved your father, you wouldn't eat that much. I loved my mom. I loved my father. I loved my dad. You know what? I ate the way I ate because I'm a compulsive overeater and no amount of discipline, no amount of knowledge, no amount of character, no amount of brains is going to alter the fact that I have an illness of the mind and an illness of the body that only a spiritual awakening will remedy. Notice I didn't say cure, I said remedy. And we learned at the end of chapter three that only a spiritual experience will help me conquer my alcoholism. Now, I never had a spiritual experience, but I have had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. And that spiritual awakening has made it possible for me not to compulsively overeat for the last 24 years plus. And I am beyond grateful to God, grateful to God Almighty, that it has been my privilege to be part of 
this journey for over 24 years, and I have not found it necessary to compulsively overeat. Trust me, I, that is not my doing. So when, we, when we're told as children, you can do it, I'm here to tell you, if you are a compulsive overeater, give up the ghost because you will never be able to do this. It is not one of the possibilities. It's not going to happen. You are not going to be able to control your food by yourself on your own. Not going to happen. Okay. We never apologize to anyone for depending upon our creator. We can laugh at those who think spirituality, the way of weakness, paradoxically, it is the way of strength. I believe it is the way of strength also because it gives me access to the strongest force in the universe, which is my creator. There is no force in the universe more impactful, more powerful, more guiding, more munificent, more benevolent than God. There is no greater force in the world. And I thank God every day that I see that because I couldn't see it for the longest period of time. I couldn't see it because I couldn't pull my head out of my butt long enough to stop thinking about what I'm lacking and what I need and what I want and all these other things and what I didn't get and what I don't have enough to serve other people. And in the service of other people comes peace, comes serenity, comes faith, comes everything. As long as I'm serving with no expectation of any return. The minute I expect a return, I'm in trouble. Let's continue. All men of faith have courage. They must trust their God. We never apologize for God. Instead, we let him demonstrate through us what he can do. One of the things that I'm very, very grateful for is within me and you, me and you, we are demonstrations of God's omnipotence. If God can restore you and I back to society and God can help us with our food disorder, then he can pretty much do anything. And it's these pockets of agnosticism that have gotten in our way for so very, very long. And what we have to do is identify these pockets of agnosticism, give them to God, and move forward with a more willing state of, of mind by saying to God, I know you can do this. Please help me out of this jam. Please, I really need your help. And know that when I walk to him, he'll run to me. Let's continue. We ask him to remove our fear and direct our attention to what he would have us be. Not what he would have us say, not where he would have us go, where uh, he would have us be means to be the person that God had intended. One of the things that I feel very, very strongly about is that in my recovery, I have finally painfully become the man, the person that God originally intended me to be. And it is a wonderful feeling to be a part of indeed, that God Almighty designed me to be exactly who I am right now. And that I don't have to put on a facade. I don't have to put on airs. I don't have to do anything like that. I'm just the person God intended me to be. I don't have to outthink you, outmaneuver you. I don't have to think, if you, if you want me to be a Democrat, I'll be a Democrat. You want me to be a Republican, I'll be a Republican. Whatever it is you want me to be, I'll be that. I don't have to live that way anymore. Here's who I am. You like me, you don't like me. Either way, we're good. Either way, we're okay. Just because you don't like me doesn't mean I have to wish you harm. Doesn't mean I have to burn the village. What it means is you don't like me. Okay, that's fine. I'm okay liking me, whether you like me or not. And that took a long, long, long time. A long time. And I'm finally there. I'm okay just the way I am. 
Do I wish for certain things? Of course I do. I wouldn't be human if I didn't. Absolutely. But I'm okay just the way I am. Let's continue. We ask him to remove our fear and direct our attention to what he would have us be at once we, we commence to outgrow fear. This is your prayer. My prayer goes something like, God, demonstrate through you what, what you can do with me. And I'm asking you to remove my fear and direct my attention to what you would have me be. And at once I commence to outgrow fear. So I've turned that into a little prayer. It works for me. It has worked for me for decades and it will continue to work for me. Let me say it again. Let me recite that prayer again. It says, God, demonstrate through me what you can do, what you're capable of. You don't have to be a genius to make this stuff up. It's easy. God, you know, demonstrate through me what you'd have us be. Please remove my fear and direct my attention to what you would have me be. Very, very simple. Remove my fear and direct my attention. That means I'm going to communicate with them about them. How are you doing? What's going on in your life? It doesn't always have to be about me. For the love of God, I want everything to be about me. And that's not the way the world is set up. When I become this narcissistic uh, whirlwind, I become this narcissistic, nattering egomaniac. That is not a way I choose to live. That is not how I want to live. And that means I'm going to have less fear because when I'm not in control of the world, now I don't have to try to control what I cannot control. And that is other people. I'm not going to try to control them. It's not my job. I do God's work. I don't do God's job. At once we commence to outgrow fear. What a great promise. And you see people all the time, they blow right past that sentence. At once we commence to outgrow fear. There's nothing in this book that says you have to live in fear. There's nothing in this book that says you have to live according to a fearful agenda. Nothing. Now, that doesn't mean that if you drop me off the John Hancock building, I'm not going to be scared to death. That doesn't mean that if I'm invited to speak someplace and I have to make a connecting flight, that that isn't going to scare me. It does. It doesn't mean that at all. What it means is I will start outgrowing fear the minute I start praying that prayer. That's what that means. If I'm lucky enough to get invited by Maria to Ireland, or I'm lucky enough to get invited to Sweden by Johan, or I'm lucky enough to get invited to Italy by Barbara and Rimini, then I'm going to go. But it's it, travel can be very frightening for me. I get scared because travel can be uh, uh, very unsettling to me. I don't always travel that well. Wednesday, I'm going to Los Angeles. Well, I'm not always nuts about the journey. I love the destination. Love the destination. Oh, the destination is great. And I'm going to be with somebody on their birthday. And it's going to be great. And we're going to go to dinner. And we're going to do this. And we're going to do that. And it's going to be a lot of fun. But tr truthfully speaking, travel scares me. And, and that's okay. I understand that. So I will do step 10. And I'll try to cool my jets. I'll try to understand, hey, this is just coming from your, your travel panic. That's where this is coming from. You don't have to give in to this. That's all it is. Travel panic. That's all. But you know, when I was younger, I didn't care. Now I care. You know, I, I just, I, what, do I, what is it that I care about? I care about the toll that the travel takes out of me. It usually takes me a day or two of resting in the living room before I'm able to go back to work. I'm so darn tired from the travel. And if that's what happens, it's going to be okay. It'll be fine. No problem. I won't worry about it. Okay. Now, we're going to talk here about the third section of the fourth step inventory and that is the sexual harms section. Now, we're going to, to, to take a different tact. We're going to use a five column inventory for this section. 
five columns. I'll give you what they are, and then we're just going to talk here for a while. We're not even going to get into probably as far as the instructions for the inventory. We're just going to talk. Column number one in the sex inventory is who did you hurt? Unless you had a sexual relationship with a telephone pole or a rock or something, it's going to be a who. There's no what's, there's no nothing like that. It's going to be a who. Who did you hurt? Write their names down. You don't remember their name? The guy with the red shirt, the woman with the blue dress. You don't remember that? Just say the guy whose name I can't remember. As long as you remember the incident, you don't need to know their names. And I think it's interesting, and this is going to make some of you chuckle. When you do the sexual harms inventory on a guy like me that came into OA, there's nobody on there because we didn't really have any, you know, we didn't really use our God-given sex powers for anything, you know, nefarious. But when you get the crossovers from AA, oh my God, you often wonder, am I ever going to see my own home again? Am I, is this ever going to stop? Oh my God. Well, anyway, we're not talking about a list of people that you've had sex with. I'm going to say that again, because it's one of the most misunderstood parts of the sexual inventory. This part of the inventory is not, I repeat, not a list of people that you've had sex with. It is not that at all. What it is, is a list of people you have harmed through the misuse of your God-given sex powers. Let's explain that. Every man, woman, and beast on earth has a God-given sex power. Some of us use it very, very evilly. Some of us use it not at all. Some of us use it in its proper perspective. If we are using it for something other than sex with a consenting adult, I don't care if that adult is the same sex as you, same gender, or they are different genders. That is not what we are talking about here. And whether it is sex with the same gender or, or a different gender is well outside the perusal of Overeaters Anonymous. So I want to be very, very clear here. It doesn't matter whether that person is the same gender or they are the opposite gender. It makes no difference here at all whatsoever. Now, when we use our God-given sex powers for something other than sex with somebody who is consenting, who has the right and privilege of saying yes or no. In other words, not a child, not someone who is handicapped, not someone who is imprisoned in some way. I don't mean in a jail. Someone who can't get away from you, someone who can't say no, then you're fine. You can use sex to enjoy it or and I didn't say and, I said or, to recreate yourself. So there's sex to enjoy and or to recreate yourself. If you're using your God-given sex powers for something other than that, now we want to take a look at that. Let's do so together. Each and every one of you learns from a very early age on, especially you ladies, when you get to be about 14, 15, you start learning, wow, I've got a lot of power here. Whoa, I can, I can really wield that power very, very uh, effectively, very effectively. Now, you get a job and you're working and Mr. Jones or Miss Smith or somebody in that hierarchy of that company takes a shine to you. I don't mean because you're a good worker. They take a shine to you because they are attracted to you. And you don't really care anything for them. Maybe you never had sex with them. But did you use your God-given flirtation? Did you get the job by flirting? 
Did you get the job? Did you did you use your God-given sex powers for something other than what they were intended for? Did you use your sex powers to further your career? Maybe you wanted a promotion. So you made it known to this person who had a crush on you that, you know, maybe they could take you to dinner. Maybe they could do this. Maybe they could do that. You didn't really mean any of it. You're just flirting with them. You're leading that person on into believing that there's something there when indeed there is not. That's one way of using your God-given sex powers for something other than what they were intended for. You're using them to further your career, which would fall under the security instinct and probably the social instinct, possibly the sex instinct as well, but definitely social and definitely security, okay? Now, let's say you are in a relationship with somebody. Now, this is obviously the most classic uh, you know, thing here, the most classic. Number one, you're in a committed relationship with somebody and you step out of that relationship and you carry on with someone else. I had that happen to me. I wasn't the one carrying on, but my wife clearly, clearly was. She was carrying on with somebody that she met at work. And when she told us and told me in May of 2010, we need to talk. Uh, we're getting a divorce. I'm in love and you're not making a lot of money and blah, blah, blah. And he makes more than you and blah, blah, blah. Well, that is something that you would want to look at if you have stepped out of a committed relationship, whether there's marriage involved, whether there's not marriage involved, that would be something to look for because you are not only hurting the other person, you may be hurting children, you may be hurting parents, relatives, friends. There's usually a lot of collateral damage when something like that occurs. Perhaps you're using your God-given sex powers to manipulate another person. Now, what do I mean by that? You're in a relationship with another person and they like blue cars, but you like red cars. So you'll cut them off at the pass and chop them off from any affection, any sex, any contact until they come around to your way of thinking. That's using your sex powers for something other than what they were intended for. You with me so far? See, these are things you may not have thought of because when we see the sex inventory, a lot of times people mistakenly think this is a list of people I've had sex with. No, it's not. Or they think if I've never cheated, well, you don't have to do it. Well, when I first did my sex inventory, I was not only a virgin, I had never been on a date before in my entire life. I didn't go on my first date with a girl till I was 35 years old. And I was morbidly obese. So believe me, I didn't have sex powers. I'm not so sure I have them now, but I certainly didn't have them then. And I couldn't wield them in any way that was in any way errant to the norm. So my sponsor made me look at my friend relationships to see where they had been selfish or whether I had manipulated people into trying to get them to do what I wanted them to do. And so I had to use my inventory to look at all my relationships. I didn't have sexual relationships yet at that time. Now, thank God I have. But the bottom line is at that time in my life, I had not had that. And so I had to look at all my relationships and ask myself a question. Are they above board? Are they manipulative? Am I using somebody? Am I using somebody to get to something I want? Maybe my friend has a rocket ship that goes to the moon. So I befriend that person so I can ride on the rocket ship to the moon. You can fill in from your own life Maybe you never had a friend that had a rocket ship that went to the moon, but maybe you had a sexual liaison. Either you did take your clothes off or you didn't, but you led that person on because they may have had something you wanted. Now, 
did you use your God-given sex powers to hurt another person? Let's take a look. Let's say you're in a committed relationship. It's you and that other person. Let's call them B. You're A, they're B. So you, you and B break up. B ends it or you end it, whatever it is. Or let's say they end it because it makes more sense. And you're going to show them. You're going to seduce their best friend. You're going to seduce somebody to make that person feel terrible about hurting you. Sex has nothing. Enjoyment of sex has nothing to do with that. Maybe you did enjoy the sex. That's not what we're talking about here. You didn't go into this to enjoy the sex. You went into it to hurt the feelings of another person. Maybe you are using sex or your God-given sex powers because you just don't want to be alone on a Saturday night. Maybe you want somebody to go with you for dinner. Maybe you want somebody to pick up the check for dinner. Maybe you want somebody to go with you to a party because you don't want to show up there by yourself. All these are things that you need to look at. And when you look at these things objectively, you will most often find that there were manipulative, nefarious reasons why you may have done some of it. I didn't say there were nefarious reasons that you did. I said there may be. So that's what you want to look at. Did you use your God-given sex powers to manipulate or hurt another person? Did you ignore them? Did you cut them off? Did you give them the cold shoulder? Refuse to talk to them? Refuse to give them sex? Now, I'm not saying you have to do everything the other person wants. You're not. No, that's not what I'm saying. But somewhere in the middle. And here's the last thing I will cover in the sex inventory. Are you making demands on somebody in this area that they have expressed to you they would rather not do? Or are you withholding something that you could easily do, but you just don't want to be bothered to walk that extra mile to make sure that that person is satisfied and happy? Ponder these things that we've talked about. Ask yourself in every reflection of, of the relationship of your life, did you misuse your God-given sex powers for something other than what they were intended for? Did you hurt people in the process? This is not a list of people that you've had sex with. It is not that at all. And as overeaters, we will run the gamut of extremes. We will either have sex with very, very few people, or we've had sex with, oh my God, is the list ever going to stop people? We have a tendency to run to extremes in this area. And there's a lot, this is for another time. This is for another meeting. This is, but there's also a lot of love addiction. Wherever you get people that are addicted, there is a lot of love addiction that comes into play here. But do the best you can to separate these things and put down an inventory that you know is accurate. Don't be perfect. Do the best that you can. You don't have to be perfect. The only step you have to work perfectly is paso prima, step one. I learned how to say that from my friend Barbara in uh, Italy, in Rimini, Italy. Step one is paso prima, paso prima, step one. Okay, let's go to the bottom of 68. Now about sex. Many of us needed an overhauling there, but above all, we tried to be sensible on this question. It's so easy to get way off the track. Here we find human opinions running to extremes, absurd extremes perhaps. One set of voices cried that sex is a lust of our lower nature, a base necessity of procreation. <clears throat> then we have the voices who cry for sex and more sex. 
but who bewail the institution of marriage, who think that most of the troubles of the race are traceable to sex causes. Very Freudian there with Freud. You know, everything was sex and sex and sex with Freud. Okay. They think we do not have enough of it, <clears throat> excuse me, or that it isn't the right kind. Whether it's the right kind or not, not for us to judge. We are not, okay. They see its significance everywhere. One school would allow man no flavor for his fear and the other would have us all on a straight pepper diet. We want to stay out of this controversy. We do not want to be the arbiter of anyone's sex conduct. We all have sex problems, for sure. We'd hardly be human if we didn't. What can we do about them? Here is your specific instruction. This is your specific instruction for the sex inventory, the third part of a three-part inventory. We reviewed our own conduct over the years past. Where had we been selfish, dishonest, or inconsiderate? Whom had we hurt? Column one, who did you hurt? Column two, what did you do to them? 19 words or less, please. Do not write me a flippin' novel on what you did to them. I don't need it in the X-rated section of the bookstore. Just give me headlines. What did you do to them? I'm not looking for pornography here. I'm looking to get to the facts. Don't write me a blow-by-blow -blow description. Did we unjustifiably arouse jealousy, suspicion, or bitterness? Third column, first column in the sex inventory of five columns. Number one, who did you hurt? Number two, what did you do to them? Column three, what basic instinct or instincts are affected? Column four, what defects of character in you caused you to take or omit that action. Column five, we're going to get to, where were we at fault? Column four, what should we have done instead? Column five, what should you have done instead? Column one in the sex inventory, who did you hurt? Column two, what did you do to them? Please don't write me pornography. Just tell me what you did to them. Okay, some of that stuff is best left in your mind. And, you know, when you have a certain smile, we'll know what you're thinking about. We don't need to hear it. Column three, what basic instinct or instincts are affected? Column four, what defects of character in you caused you to take or omit that harmful action? And column five, what should you have done? Instead, I'm going to do that one more time. Column one, who did you hurt? Column two, what did you do to them? Column three, what basic instinct or instincts are affected? And column four, what defects of character in you cause you to take or omit that action? And column five, what should you have done instead? Let's move on. We got this all down on paper and looked at it. You put it down on the paper. So now we have completed three sections of the fourth step. We've completed the resentment section. We've completed the fear section. And now we have completed the sexual harms section. Now I wanna ask you a rhetorical question. You don't have to answer me. You don't have to put your hand up. We're not done yet. Did you see anything in this fourth step that is so difficult, so complicated that you just can't do it? And yet there are people that they go nuts. Get it down on paper. Do what is expected of you and you'll never go wrong. You will be fine. 
resentments. You know who or what you resent. Fear. You know who or what you fear and sexual harms done others. Let's just say you forget somebody or something. Is that the end of the world? No. We have step 10. No, it's not the end of the world. Should you deliberately leave people out? No. Are there things on here you might be ashamed of? There is nothing you're going to put down that we haven't heard 80 million times. Nothing. Nothing. Until you get to that point where you are not so unique as you think you are, it's going to be difficult. You haven't done anything. You haven't had sex with anyone. You haven't done anything that we haven't heard a million freaking times. A million freaking times. In this way, I'm continuing on page 69. We tried to shape a sane and sound ideal for our future sex life. Now, I have worked on my ideal. I only have about nine minutes left, so I'll share mine with you. I went on my first date with a girl. I was 35 years old. I missed out on decades and decades of this stuff. I have a friend in from Chicago. He is, a, I've known him. I've known him and his brother for 55 years. And he, unlike his brother, this guy, he, oh my God, uh, his life was, a, his, this is his life. Dear Penthouse, I never thought this would ever happen to me. And then it would go on and on and all the girls wanted to jump on him. And I could never, ever in a million years see anything like that in my, there's no way, no way in hell I would see anything like that. I have another friend who lives here, actually. He's in the same boat. Dear Penthouse, I never thought this would ever happen to me, but the other night I came home and blah, blah, blah. Well, it's hard to think of what I missed out on because essentially they're great guys, but they're no better at being human beings than me. They just had a different history here because they didn't have eating disorders. They didn't weigh 335 pounds in high school. They didn't weigh 600 pounds when they graduated college. They didn't do those things. So they had very, very... Uh, not exaggerated, but very normal kind of comeuppance in that area. And it's enviable to be sure. But one of the things I look at in my future, how to shape a sane and sound ideal is discarding all that crap. What am I going to bring into tomorrow and today? Forget where all that stuff. So I, I went with, I had a date with somebody when I was 35 years old and we got into a relationship and when they broke it off, I was devastated. The next one to come along, I married her. I shouldn't have done that. That was dumb. Why did I marry this girl? I never should have married her. It was stupid. Now I'm not saying I'm glad, I'm, I'm sad I married her, but what I'm saying is it really didn't turn out very well, okay? The reason I'm not sad I married her is if I hadn't married her, we wouldn't have had our daughter. But it was not a marriage I should have been in. It wasn't a marriage she should have been in. So what I learned from that marriage is I was not an adult in that marriage. I was a child. She was the mommy and I was the son. I married a mommy. My mom was crazy. My mom was mentally ill. My mom three personalities, three-year-old, uh, screaming, raving lunatic, or pretty normal person. And there was visceral, you know, differences in, in, in things. But I never really had a mom. My mom was, she loved me and, and, and all that, but I married my mommy, okay? Well, you know, I'm not going to do that again. I'm never going to do that again. So one of the things I learned in my ideal is be an adult and marry an, or you don't have to get married, but be an adult and be in a relationship with another adult. Don't be the parent. Don't be the child. Very important lesson. I hope I stick to it, but that's what I learned. I also learned that in my marriage, which was 17 and a half years, and we were together 18 and a half, almost 19 years, is... You don't have to take, you, you don't have to be wrong all the time. 
I woke up with a general sense of I'm wrong and I'm sorry. I didn't even know what the hell I was apologizing for half the time. I woke up with this just sense of wrongness. And my ex-wife was always pissed off about something. And I shouldn't be in a relationship where every day in every situation I'm being yelled at and excoriated and, and, you know, all that. No, that's not the relationship I need to be in. So sometimes you got to call the fight off. You got to throw in the towel and say, Hey, this isn't the relationship for me. And that comes from having the faith to say something else is going to come along. I learned in a relationship that if you're not in recovery, you're not in a relationship, you're playing house, you're playing with a house of cards. I have to be in recovery. I'm not looking at what the other person's doing. I don't care. I don't give a crap. I need to be in recovery. I need to not be overeating. I need to be working my program. That has to come first. It's program first, the other person second, me third. God first, others second, me third. And if that's not the pecking order, if I put this person above God, now I'm in trouble because I've got nothing to give a relationship if I'm not in recovery. I have nothing to give. Number three, what else did I learn? Number four, whatever the hell it is, three, is I am who I am. I am what I am. I don't have to pretend that I'm a Democrat if I'm a Republican. I don't have to pretend I'm a Republican if I'm a Democrat. I don't have to be something I'm not. This is who I am. This is what I am. This is what I look like. I'm not happy about it either. I wish I, I wish I looked, you know, whatever. But the bottom line is, is that um. I am who I am, like Popeye the Sailor Man, when he's at the end of each cartoon, he'd say, I am what I am. This is me. This is what you're getting. The, you don't like that. You don't want that. That's it. Now, here's something I learned after marriage. I was in a relationship that was constantly me chasing and the other person running, me chasing and the other person running. That's not a relationship. That's insanity. That's not a relationship between two people. That's a relationship between me and craziness. If it's, if it's not meant to be, let it freaking go. Let it go. So I got a very clear schooling the last time I was in a relationship that if somebody is telling you something, listen to them. Maya Angelou said, when somebody tells you who they are, listen to them. I'm listening. I'm a better listener today than I was before that relationship. You tell me several times, you don't want to be involved with me. Have a great life. Best of luck to you. I would rather be alone than be chasing the elusive butterfly of something that is not meant to be. And just when I stopped chasing it, something magical happened in my life. Something magical happened in my life. Now, I don't know what the story is, but something magical happened in my life. When I stopped trying to tackle what God did not want me to tackle. And so you learn, you live and learn. I'm going through crap now, relationship-wise, that my friends who are here from Chicago and the one that lives here, they went through this when they were 16, 17, 18. And when I tell them what I'm going through, they say, well, we experienced this, you know, when Nixon was president or when, you know, whatever. So they went through it very early because they we're in their fourth relationship or fifth relationship or 300th relationship many, 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 many years ago. So I'm going through that now. And there are things physically I can't do. There are things physically I can't do. I'm 68 years old. I take a beta blocker because I take a beta blocker. I it's, it's, it's difficult. So if you're a man, you understand. If you're not a man, you don't need to understand. But I have to take a beta blocker for my heart, which means there are things I can't do. I wish I could do them. Boy, do I wish I could do them. I can't. I can't do them.
So there are many, many things that we learn as we go through life, as the, as the earth revolves around the sun, and we learn these things, are we applying them? Are we bringing them into our life? All this stuff that we know in recovery, if we don't apply it to our lives, is absolutely worthless. It's gotta be applicable. And if it's applicable, I have to apply it. And what that means is I don't just theoretically read things in a book and say, yeah, this is great for the inventory and then go live the same way I was living. We don't apologize to the constitution. We amend it. What does amend mean? Means to change. I have to change my life based on what I'm learning. If I don't change my life based on what I'm learning, what am I here for? I'm not going to keep on my recovery. I'm not going to keep recovery. I'm eventually going to go back into the food because the pain of not eating is going to be massively too much to bear. So we have to apply these things in our life. Okay. Um, before I turn it back over, just a reminder, we are going to have two wonderful speakers next week. We are going to have them speaking to you on Zoom, just like you're tuned in now. And it's going to be fantastic. I will be in Los Angeles. A lot of people ask me when you go to Los Angeles, do you still, you know, do you still let people know that USC sucks? Yes, I do. Absolutely. I let them know that the Dodgers and USC blow chunks. But the bottom line is you're going to have a great meeting next week. We will reconvene in two weeks and we are going to have one 